The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Tools of the Trade, Prioritizing Weight Management in People with Type 2 Diabetes, Sharpening Your Skills to Intensify Therapy and Engage in Shared Decision-Making. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash bvw860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Stefano Del Prato from Pisa University School of Medicine in Pisa, Italy. Welcome to this educational activity focused on prioritizing weight management in people with type 2 diabetes. Included as part of this activity, I will be showing you how to use a practice aid and a shared decision-making aid that you can download to help you address clinical challenges that you may encounter in your clinical practice or that may support some of the discussion you are having with your patients. Download these tools now so you have them ready when we review the case study. Type 2 diabetes represents a major burden worldwide. Currently, there is an estimate of a close to 530 million people with type 2 diabetes worldwide, with 96% of them being people with a type 2 diabetes. Now, what you can see here is the calculation of what is the contribution of uh, overweight and obesity to the burden of diabetes in different countries in the world. And what has been calculated here is that from 1990 to 2021, the contribution of IBMI to type 2 diabetes daily rose by 24.3%. So this really suggests that the increased prevalence of overweight and obesity is definitely affecting what is the rate of uh, uh, type 2 diabetes. And this can be appreciated if we do uh, compare what is the prevalence of obesity versus the prevalence of diabetes. And actually, when you do this, and these are data that have been obtained in 80 countries, it turns out to be that there is a very strong correlation between the prevalence of the one and the prevalence of the other. So the two are very strictly interconnected. Although obesity may not be the only cause, actually it could be the uh, accelerator for type 2 diabetes to develop. Because what we have learned over the past few years is that type 2 diabetes recognized a very multifactorial path pathogenesis. It was uh, Dr. DeFronzo reporting on the ominous octet, because there are at least eight different players contributing to chronic hyperglycemia in type 2 diabetes. Is the defect of the beta cell with impure insulin secretion? Is the defect of the alpha cell in the pancreas with an inappropriate increase in glucagon secretion? Is the defect in insulin action at the insulin target level, in particular the level of the muscle and the adipose tissue, that result in an impure glucose utilization? Is it the effect of the action of the, beat, of the insulin on the liver accounting for an excess increase in the uh, uh, glucose uh, production and release into the bloodstream? But more recently, it has been also recognized a role for the kidney. The kidney normally reabsorbs glucose, but in people with type 2 diabetes, it reabsorbs it at a greater extent, so paradoxically contributing to hyperglycemia. Also, and the fact that the level of the secretion of intestinal hormone has been recognized to contribute to hyperglycemia. In response to a meal, the, 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 the secretion of GLP-1 and GIP is impaired, and this is results in an impairment in the modulation of the uh, secretion of pancreatic hormones, thus contributing to hyperglycemia. And all of this, of course, you know, is under the control of the brain and the central nervous system. And for, for brain, neurotransmitter defect has been identified that may account for an impairment in the metabolic regulation in the whole body.
So all this concords to chronic hyperglycemia. And to appreciate, you know, the chronic uh, characteristic and feature of the disease, you can look at this slide here. What is represented on the top is, a, is an example of the progressive increase in the fasting plasma glucose concentration in the post-meal glucose that occurs in people with type 2 diabetes. But what's important here is to try to understand what is the mechanism, what is the, the reason for this progressive increase, which is depicted in the bottom of the slide where you can see how insulin resistance is already present before the start of the diabetes. And what it really dictates the pace and the rate of increase in glucose concentration is the progressive loss of the beta cell function. So this chronicity also has implication on a clinical ground. Because if you have to face a chronic and progressive disease, what also we need to consider in order to achieve good glycemic control is a progressive intensification in the pharmacological treatment. And this treatment intensification is key in achieving the target goal for glucose control. However, although glucose and hyperglycemia is the hallmark of the condition, this is not the only metabolic alteration that is present in people with type 2 diabetes. People with type 2 diabetes has a very much increase in the risk of cardiovascular, uh, cardiovascular events. And this is because in people with type 2 diabetes, there are very commonly concomitant uh, many other cardiovascular risk factors. It has been shown in this uh, large uh, uh, database from uh, Northern uh, European countries. Now, there are many, many different factors that can contribute to the risk of microvascular complication in people with diabetes. However, top of the list are the usual suspects. It's glycemic control, as indicated by glycated hemoglobin. It's the systolic blood pressure. It's the LDL cholesterol. So, achieving a good control of these factors together with a chronic control of hyperglycemia may be very key and actually is key in reducing the burden of the complication in people with type 2 diabetes. However, in spite of the fact that we know all this, we are not that successful in uh, really targeting this, this factor. These are data that have been uh, recently reported from the Haynes, the surveys that is really following up uh, people, the, the adult population of, of the United States uh, for different conditions. And what is shown here is the percentage of people with diabetes achieving a target for glucose control, the target for blood pressure control, the target for lipid control. And you can appreciate that, generally speaking, there is no more than 50% of the people with diabetes in the adult population of the United States achieving those targets. But what is even more of a matter of concern is that when you look at how many people do manage to achieve simultaneous control of all these three factors, glucose, blood pressure, lipids, it's no more than 22%. So we needed to have a different approach. We needed to really tackle all these conditions in order to reduce the burden of the disease. We need to have a more comprehensive, holistic approach. What we have recommended in the most recent ADA, ESD consensus report for the treatment of hyperglycemia in people with type 2 diabetes is indeed a comprehensive approach. And this is just a summary of it. So let me just point out your attention to the circle, which is made of four different elements. And those elements are the elements that without any specific priority needed to be considered at the time we needed to, we needed to start and needed to decide which kind of a, a, a approach we needed to have for, for a given individual. It is the glycemic control, 
is the body weight management, is the cardiovascular risk factors, and the identification of uh, people who already have an organ damage. Now, what has been a major emphasis put in this consensus was about the, the role of the body weight. Now, what we have been recommending is that in order to really deal with the management of, the, of body weight, we need to be very uh, open and to consider, you know, identifying individualized weight ma management goals and targets, uh, provided with all the, the, the uh, recommendation for the uh, lifestyle modification, but also to consider intervention as early as possible, including, if needed, metabolic surgery. But also what's important is considering that we have a, a stronger uh, tools now to really achieve better uh, body weight reduction. And what you can see here is the ranking that we have been uh, proposing with the drugs that with a very high effect in terms of the body weight lowering, high effect intermediate and neutral. And all this needed to be considered. It needs to be considered in particular what is the implication of body weight in people with type 2 diabetes. Let me remind you that just because of the correlation and the relationship that I showed you between prevalence of obesity and the presence of diabetes, that obesity indeed can be a major accelerator in terms of diabetes and many other conditions, as well as in terms of the complications that characterize type 2 diabetes. As you can see here, obesity really is at the beginning of this dramatic cascade. So what we need to do is just to maybe move a little bit away from the glucocentric approach that is a downstream intervention to move to a weight-centric approach, in other words, an upstream intervention, because impacting on obesity may really result in a significant improvement in terms of the outcomes for people with type 2 diabetes. And we have better tools nowadays, as I was referring to. This is an interesting uh, way to, to, to look at this because, you know, we have the entire array of the glucose-lowering agents that we have in our hands, but what is shown here is the effect of these glucose-lowering agents in terms of the body weight. And we have, you can see here, very effective uh, drugs, as well as we have drugs that may, may, may cause an increase in the body weight. So, taking into account managing body weight is very key in people with a type 2 diabetes. So in spite of the fact that we may have a very effective drugs in reducing body weight, I think it's important not to forget what is the uh, implication, what is the role of dietary modification and increased exercise, in other words, lifestyle modification. Now, this has been indeed a very interesting study, and what it was shown that in a clinical trial program with a GLP-1-based therapy in people with type 2 diabetes, the improvement in glycemic control and the reduction in body weight was even greater if the pharmacological treatment was used with proper lifestyle modification. It's also important to appreciate that the reduction in body weight exerts a number of beneficial effects that are proportional to the degree of body weight reduction. It's a summarized here. Now you can see that with a, between the 0.0 and 0.5% reduction, there is already an effect in improvement in glucose control and blood pressure that becomes even more apparent with an effect on many other factors with a 5 to 10 and up to 15% reduction. And what above the 15% body weight reduction, there are significant change in what is the health condition of a person with diabetes. In people in the early stage of the disease, 
reduction of the body weight greater than 15% is associated with more than twofold the chance of inducing diet remission. And this is also being shown to be associated with a reduction in cardiovascular mortality and hospitalization for heart failure. So it is very important. But you know, together with the body weight reduction, it's also important to consider what is the other factor that could in determine a risk for people with type 2 diabetes. I've been already alluding before to what is the risk of macrovascular and cardiovascular disease. And it's important to remember that up to 30% of people with type 2 diabetes already have a cardiovascular event. This could be coronary heart disease, it could be heart failure, peripheral artery disease, and stroke. So when we try really to treat people with type 2 diabetes, we are really trying to reduce the burden of this condition here. And it's important then to really tackle all one of the factors that can contribute to cardiovascular risk that I was already alluding to before. Now, in uh, tackling the person with, uh, with diabetes, glucose control is important, but also we need to pay attention in terms of uh, blood, blood pressure lowering, lipid lowering, antithrombotic agents, smoking cessation, improving the lifestyle modification, body weight reduction, and active screening and surveillance for all these cardiovascular risk factors. Also, what is important to consider is that some of the people with type 2 diabetes, even at the time of the diagnosis, they may already present with an organ damage. Organ damage, I'm referring to the presence of chronic kidney disease with an atherosclerotic uh, uh, event or with heart failure. Remember that heart failure tends to manifest even earlier sometimes than cardiovascular disease itself. And what uh, now we can really recommend is that based on the, the result of a large cardiovascular outcome trial, that I provided the basis for this recommendation. The recommendation is that in people with type 2 diabetes, with chronic kidney disease, the recommendation is to consider use of an SGLT2 inhibitor. The same, an SGLT2 inhibitor is highly recommended for people who present with heart failure. While for those people with an atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, we can really go for a GLP-1 receptor agonist, considering that GLP-1 receptor agonist can also help in reducing the body weight, which per se may contribute to cardiovascular risk, or an SGLT2. Both of them are using drugs with a proven cardiovascular benefit. Uh, now, we've been just discussing, you know, what is the, the, the role of the body weight, what is the role of the cardiovascular risk factor, what is the role of identification of organ damage. But as I mentioned before, diabetes is really featured by hyperglycemia. And hyperglycemia still remain a main target for treating people with type 2 diabetes because hyperglycemia is strictly associated with the risk of microvascular complication. And in doing so, again, what we need to consider is that we have better tools in our hands because we have more effective treatment in order to reduce glucose concentration and to do that in a chronic and more sustained manner. It is because of this need for sustained glycemic control that also what we have been recommending is that combination therapy should be considered early on during the, uh, during the natural history of the disease for a number of reasons. Because combination can provide a synergistic effect, tackling and, uh, a different um, uh, pathogenetic mechanism. But not only that, the combination therapy can also take advantage of specific uh, action of uh, some of the drugs. Like, for instance, 
combining drugs with a powerful high po- powerful glucose lowering effect together with drugs that may contribute to body weight reduction or protection of cardiovascular risk or protection of the renal function. And in setting and deciding which drug to go for, also we need to consider what is the the potency of the glucose lowering agent that we have, that we have been ranked in the ADA ESD recommendation. What is also important to consider is that, as I already mentioned for the combination therapy, the different treatment may be helpful because they may allow to tackle specific mechanisms accounted for chronic hyperglycemia. So for each one of the eight defected, Dr. DeFrons has pointed out in the famous ominous octet, now we have drugs that allow us to be more precisely tackling those specific mechanisms. And because of that, and particularly if we can combine them in the people requiring that combination, we may be able to provide a more sustained glycemic control. And together with the glycemic control, a more comprehensive approach in, in, taking, in tackling the different uh, cardiovascular risk factors, including uh, obesity. Now, we have the tools. We have the possibility, we have a more physiological-based kind of approach, but all this rely on the adherence to the treatments. And now, unfortunately, even though we may have effective drugs, sometimes those drugs are not used properly, or at least they are not used at the proper time. This was an interesting study that was performed by Dr. Kamers Kunti in the UK. And actually, I think it's something that we should really keep in mind, because it shows that for people not achieving the target, or actually for people overshooting those targets, having an A1C greater than 7.5 or 7.8, the delay before anything is is done in terms of adding an oral agent or adding a second oral agent, or if needed, adding insulin, is much, much delayed. For the time for adding one oral agent, there is a delay between two and three years. But this delay can become as long as six, if not more than seven years. And this means exposure to chronic hyperglycemia, exposure to metabolic dysregulation that really can contribute to increase the risk of complication in people with diabetes. Now, dealing with, with, a, uh, uh, dealing with the clinical inertia is not a simple task for a very simple reason that it's multifactorial. And you can see here, uh, it's just summarized what is the different components of this clinical inertia. It is patient-related, of course, because of a number of reasons, but it can be also physician-related and also can be associated to the healthcare system-related. And most of the time, it's just a combination of all these. So we needed to have a way to tackle this, this condition because this condition can really contribute to the development of a complication in people with diabetes. And in order to try to, to help healthcare providers to deal with clinical inertia, the American Diabetes Association has come up with uh, three major pillars uh, that really represent the best practice framework to uh, fight clinical inertia. The, the first pillar is um, uh, to empower the patients. We need really to have the patient to understand why we are taking some decision and also have the patient to understand how much he can contribute by him or herself to what is the uh, achievement that are needed in order to minimize the risk of complication. It's optimizing care and treatment. And I already mentioned that the importance of achieving early and sustained glycemic control. But also, we need to leverage on tools and techs. 
think about you know to pharmacological treatment that's a, is a tool and we may have the best tool in our hands but if that tool is not used if that drug is not regularly taken if that drug is not properly selected and the patient educated to take that in a in a regular manner that drug is not going to play any significant role or any effect in doing so one possibility is really to look at the uh, guidelines and adopting a diabetes treatment algorithm and let me just remind you what recently the ADA and the ASD has been recommended I'm not going to take you through all this because this is just a summary of what we have been discussing the importance to tackle the organ damage the importance to manage body weight reduction the importance of a reducing in a, in a sustained manner glycemic level uh, glucose levels in a, a really considering uh, the presence of different cardiovascular risk factors we have the tool we have the guidelines it's up to us really to try to implement them but let's try to take a note to do a little exercise let's deal with, with, a, with a person with the diabetes and I'd like to introduce to you Janice. Janice is a 67-year-old black woman. Uh, she works at the local library, but she has a long history of diabetes, 15 years. And over those 15 years, she really developed retinopathy, neuropathy, and CKD, all three of the typical microvascular complication. And you can see on the middle column, the lab data uh, of Janice. Uh, you can realize that uh, Janice is a, a, an obese uh, person uh, with a BMI of 34 kilograms uh, above uh, square meters. Uh, she's uh, uh, reporting uh, foot numbness, and uh, the lab parameters are shown here. Glycemic control, not good, A1C 8.2%. Blood pressure, not a target, 142 over 92. LDL cholesterol, yeah, it's all right, but... We can also consider that the presence of a long history of the disease, the presence of microvascular complication, really set the condition to identify Janice as a high cardiovascular risk. And she has a moderate impairment in the kidney function with a uh, slightly elevated uh, albumin excretion rate and a normal level of potassium. Now, the potassium is important to consider because if you take a look at what is the treatment of, of, of Janice, you can appreciate that there are drugs that may interfere with the potassium and may also interfere with the renal function as well as may interfere with cardiovascular risk. And that is the meloxicum that she's taking because of some uh, uh, joint, uh, joint pain. But that's, I would wonder how much of that pain is really due to the chronic obesity of Janice. In terms of the other treatment, she's on metformin, citagliptin, a statin, atovastatin, uh, and uh, uh, AC inhibitors, and a diuretic, which you know, fits with what is the general you know, needs uh, of Janice. But now, Janice, in spite of all this, as I already mentioned, ended up in not a very good glycemic control. And I think that this is an example of the clinical inertia that we have been referring to before, because 15 years have been passing by, and yet Janice has not been properly treated, and because of that, she has developed a complication. Let me remind you that the type 2 diabetes is a chronic condition. It's a progressive condition. And because of that progressive nature of the disease, 
intensification of the treatment is often needed. So early management is important, but together with early management is the constant screening and evaluation to which extent the target are achieved. Taking into consideration that many people with type 2 diabetes may need to take two or more medicine, and at the end maybe also they may need insulin, although insulin is now becoming really more and more in the late stage of the disease. And also we need to take into account that type 2 diabetes is just a sort of a big black box, and individuals are really different one to another. So we really need to consider what is the specific need and individualize, personalize the treatments. And this is an exercise that needed to be performed at each time visit, and including a timely appointment in order to really keep track of what we uh, can do. Now, this kind of approach also requires a very strict collaboration of the physician and the healthcare providers and the person with diabetes. In other words, we really need to have a conversation with our patients. It's important that the people with diabetes understand what they may be facing and why we are proposing them some treatment. So it's a method to explain them what is the nature of the disease. Well, because of the natural disease, why we have been uh, selecting a specific treatment plan. Uh, and also uh, and, uh, explaining to them that this can, is a team effort. And the main team and the basic team is the physician and the person with diabetes. And the, 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 the dialogue needed to really include all the different uh, topics, including what has been achieved and what are the challenges in order to find a common uh, solution to that. It's, it's not a simple task. We need to appreciate that. Because there are multiple determinants that really can make the task very, very difficult. And this, these determinants are, are shown here. You can also define them as social determinants of health. And you can see that 40% of them are being calculated to be associated to socioeconomic factors. Very little we can do that. You know, we as a physician, uh, may be taking care of 20% in terms of those social determinants. So it's only 20 out of 80. But I'd like to say that if you sum up the 20 of what we can do, together with the change in the health behaviors that we, together with the person with diabetes, can try to, to achieve, and then uh, on what can be done as a society to try to change the, the physical environment, we can go up to more than 50% in order to uh, really help people uh, with, uh, with the diabetes. So this really requires a constant dialogue between the person with diabetes and his uh, or her uh, doctor. So this also requires that the communication is an effective one is that language indeed matters in people with a diabetes. So we need to be positive and focus on the potential benefit of whatever we'll, we are, are proposing in terms of the treatment management. We need to be helpful and supportive. We need to be aware of nonverbal communication. We need to be collaborative. We need to be understanding. We need to be aware of all the, the, the challenges uh, that may be there and trying to find solutions for all this, those challenges. So it's really a common effort that we need to look at. So let's assume for a moment that we have managed to speak with, with, uh, with Janice. Janice treatment regimen is not optimal, uh, and we need really to, to, really to carefully scrutinize you know, what is the current situation here. 
because we don't want the uh, uh, complication to, to progress. Uh, now, as you can imagine, you know, uh, she's on metformin. Uh, metformin is still a first-line uh, treatment in people with type 2 diabetes. It has been claimed to have some cardiac protection. It may have also some anorectic protection in, uh, uh, action in some people. Uh, Citagliptin is a, is, a, is, a, is a good drug, but has a neutral effect on the heart, but also has a neutral effect on, on, on body weight. Atorvastatin uh, protects the heart, however, for, for Janice, we may consider, you know, to reinforce this treatment because uh, she can be considered at a high risk of cardiovascular, uh, of cardiovascular disease, and because of that, a lower level of LDL cholesterol should be uh, considered. Uh, she has a, an imperative function, but she's on a, a NAC inhibitor and a, a diuretic that should really help in controlling blood pressure and protecting the heart and uh, the, the kidney. So uh, what, what we probably need to consider, you know, is the, the, the effect and the role of meloxicam. Meloxicam can promote edema, can increase the risk of cardiovascular events, and worsen kidney function. She's taking meloxicam because of a, a, a joint pain, but, you know, but we need also uh, to, to appreciate that the body weight of genesis may be associated with uh, osteoarthritis. So uh, we needed to consider, you know, whether the meloxicam can be uh, eliminated. But what's important here, besides, you know, what is the critical examination of what is the current situation, is the need to speak uh, with, uh, uh, with Janice and really to try Janice to understand what could be the next step in order to protect her from the development of complication. And I think that you can uh, look at what is the material that you have downloaded because that material can be the uh, starting point and then helping and, and helping the tool uh, to really uh, discuss what to do uh, with, with Janice. First of all, this tool may help you to explain uh, to Janice uh, what could be the consequences of having a, a diabetes well managed and what would be the consequences, the bad consequences, if diabetes is not under control. And also it may help her to really have uh, Janice to appreciate what is the concept of a team effort here, what can she done and what uh, the physician uh, can do. Uh, to the same extent, I think you know, the, the, the other tool that you have downloaded can be quite of interest. Um, there are multiple information uh, here, but I think that this information really is, is, is what is important for Janice to consider. And maybe with a better education, uh, she will also appreciate what is uh, a better time and a better timing to, to get back to the doctor to really maintain over the time a better glycemic control and uh, uh, the, 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 the risk factors uh, under control. And this it, it's very helpful because on the top, you know, there are signs and symptoms that the genus can, can uh, uh, really follow up. And on the bottom, there are lab tests that also she needs to understand because, again, is a way to really share what can be uh, achieved and what is the strategy that we are going to uh, put uh, uh, at work. So on the basis of this discussion and with the help of these tools, it may be easier uh, to really discuss what is the strategy, the therapeutic strategy, a strategy that really take into consideration advantages and disadvantages of all the drugs that we have, but even more, which specific target each one of the target or the drug can really tackle. And because of that, that could also uh, help achieving better 
outcomes in a person like uh, uh, Janice. And this is uh, what actually has happened. Uh, using the tools that I showed you, uh, we went back to Janice, uh, we explained to Janice what is important for her, what she can do to, to help herself and uh, help the team uh, to support her. And this is what happened. So this is the current medication uh, now, uh, after this discussion. Sitacliptin uh, has been uh, withdrawn, no effect on, uh, on the body weight. Tilzipatide or GL2 receptor agonist or the dual agonist has been introduced or can be considered to be introduced. We know that these drugs are quite effective in reducing the body weight and reducing the body weight may be also very much appreciated by Janice as well. They may also help in reducing uh, blood pressure. Uh, and in fact, you know, what you can see here is that the blood pressure is back to, to normal. Uh, the the uh, ezetimibe has been added on top of atorvastatin. And you can see what is the current situation for, for Janice. She has lost uh, quite a lot of body weight with a BMI that went from 34 to 30. Uh, A1C is down to 6.9%. According to some guidelines, the target is 7 or less than 7. According to some other, it's 6.5. But I think that it's just, you know, after six months or so, there is the potential for uh, to, to really go for a further and lower A1C level. Blood pressure is under control. LDL cholesterol has been reduced, so providing further protection from uh, the risk of cardiovascular disease uh, for Janice. And the renal function has remained constant. And actually, there has been a slight drop in the administration rate that could be considered as the result of multiple factors here. The reduction in the body weight, a direct effect of the GLP-1, which has been shown by uh, dedicated studies to really uh, uh, prevent uh, the progression of administration rate, as well as you know, the effect of the uh, lisinopridase uh, inhibition. Now, meloxicam has been withdrawn, uh, and uh, uh, the potassium is in the safe range. Um, foot numbers are still there, so you can consider what we can do for the foot numbers. But remember, body weight is dropping, the, uh, the joint pain may be less as a problem, so less uh, anti-inflammatory drugs are required or painkillers are required, and maybe in the long term also the foot numbers can be to some extent uh, uh, relieved. So I think uh, uh, it's, uh, uh, there are potential here for really implement uh, a more effective treatment, uh, and the tools that uh, uh, you have downloaded I hope that, you know, could be of help for, for your practice. And that concludes our discussion for today. I hope you found this activity informative and useful to your practice and encourage you to use the practice tool and share decision-making aid in your clinical practice. And I'd really like to thank you very much for your participation. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education and the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Medicine. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash BVW860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.